hello friends. This is an Apple Music interview version of the world-famous Emo Dad podcast. What does this mean? No music. Why? Apple doesn't let us play songs. Does it sound a bit weird when we introduce a song and nothing happens? Nah. But, you know, you still get the conversation and all the good times. For the full version, switch on over to Spotify and search Emo Dad. Thanks and enjoy the episode. The amount of these things a podcast I've done in my life, I could count on, on one hand. So um, usually I'm very private and I, I'm very not always comfortable about talking about stuff. Sure. So um, you caught me at a very, 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 very good time. We were <laughs> lucky. I mean, I mean, no, no, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I was just, I mean, it was the name. I mean, I was like, we talked about emo. We did we fulfilled my my prequisite, you know, re- request, <laughs> and making sure that we uh, discussed some emo emo moments. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Emo Dad podcast. My name is Matt. My name is James. And we are super, super privileged to have Matthew Davies Cray, the lead singer of Funeral for a Friend, on our podcast. He he doesn't do many of these. He told us that he can literally count on one hand the amount of podcasts he has ever done. So we are very grateful to him for taking the time to chat to us. Um, we talk about the, all the history of Funeral for a Friend. Um, we, we ask him loads of questions about what life in the band was like, his influences throughout the different albums. We find out whether they're going to be recording new music or not. Um, we talk about the recent Slam Dunk shows and a whole load of other stuff. So to get you in the mood, this is Juno by Funeral for a Friend. Um, okay, let's um, let's let's get into it then. Um, and I'm going to try and be professional. Try and give a professional interview. <clears throat> so, hello everyone. We are super excited uh, on Emo Dad Podcast to have Matthew Davis Cray of Funeral for a Friend. Yeah. <laughs> How is that? Made it. How is that? Was that good? Pretty. I mean, hey. I mean, that's off the bat without any kind of attempt to kind of steer you in the right direction. That was. That was as. That was pretty spot on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I um. Yeah, feel like I just nailed it. Um. So now we can um, end the podcast. I'm gonna go. (laughs) That's done. Thanks everyone for coming and listening. Um, so, um, thank you so much for coming. What we'd like to do with every, as we do with everyone, is to take you right back to the beginning. Okay. So, what um, is your like earliest memory of music? Wow. Okay. Mm, my earliest memory of music. Um, the one that the, the the one that pops into my head is my brother and me um, pretending to be the two coolest Beatles members, obviously. <laughs> Both of us desperate wanting to be Ringo Starr. 
around the living room, um, air guitar in, um, singing along to Twist and Shout. Um, Amazing. That, that always stays in my head for some strange reason. Um, whenever I, that question gets pulled out of the, out of the bag, my brain defaults to that. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I really, really wanted desperately to be John Lennon when I was a kid. Because, I mean, I was immersed in all that music through my dad. Mm-hmm. So um, I would literally, luckily, my brother didn't put up much of a fight. He's younger than me and he just always preferred Paul McCartney anyway. But uh, I used to force him to be Ringo Starr sometimes. But um, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of like my earliest, you know, at least the most vivid one in my brain. And was that so? So was the desire there to be a singer right from the start? No. Nope. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, aspirations of stardom would okay. never really anything. I just love music. I mean, it was always played in my household. Uh, my dad played bass in um, in various um, local bands when I was a kid. Although I kind of was, that was on the fringes of my awareness more or less when I was growing up. I mean, I knew like there was instruments in the house. Um, and he'd have mates, his mates come over and just have jams and just have a little dick around and stuff, and which I thought was pretty cool. But generally, um, singing was just a thing I we did. I mean, okay, you know, it was always we were always singing. I, I can't remember a time where <laughs> there wasn't some kind of family, like whether it was going on holiday or something. I mean, we were just uh, totally immersed in it, and it was. There was, but there was no awareness of it being like, you know, I'm going to be a singer someday. <laughs> you okay. know, it was just, it was fun. It was just fun to do, just to kind of, you know, my dad, my brother, and me just harmonize it. My mother can't sing for shit. So I hope she doesn't okay. hear <laughs> Mom, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mom. If you do, if you do hear this podcast, I do apologize, but you can't sing. <laughs> I was witness to her trying to sing karaoke once, and mm. yeah, yes, but yeah, we, okay. we, you know, we it was some tough love going on there at that point. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was you know, harmonizing, singing, dicking around, always there. Amazing, that sounds really, um, like really like, like keeping it fun rather than trying to make anything serious or professional. I, I, I mean, I can't say whether or not, obviously, my dad being, you know, the parent that he is, you know, might have seen some kind of spark of possibility there. And then, <laughs> you know, my brother and, and I went on to kind of learn piano for a bit. So there was that semi kind of like, not force, but just kind of nudged towards kind of maybe doing something, having a kind of um, a skill. Uh-huh. <laughs> out of it. Um, but I never really took to that. I mean, I did two years and I and I bumped off. My brother <laughs> suffered through it a bit longer, actually a lot longer, actually into his into his teens, into well okay. into his teens. So um, yeah, but I was just like, nah, nah, I don't being taught stuff. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm like that as well. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and then what was the first kind of um, I guess kind of heavy or alternative music you kind of experienced um that would probably be mtv coming into my household full steam ahead through satellite sky tv right um uh, and with that came a whole like wealth of 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 stuff i mean at that point i was just going into comprehensive 
school mm-hmm. um so i was kind of finding my way there and getting to know a group of people and literally it was that case where in about what was that what was it like 90 90 91 92 i properly got into um like 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 heavier sounding stuff i mean stuff that was heavier than like than the kinks or the animals sure. and stuff that my dad because up until that point i was like literally it was a case of like like top the chart stuff my dad would buy and then like all the stuff i would religiously listen to like the beatles and the beach boys and neil young crosby Stills, nash and young and the eagles and stuff and things like that and then all of a sudden it was just like I flicked I mean I was I can't remember what it was but there was some like festival live festival or recap from some festival and bad religion were playing and I was just like this is mine yeah <laughs> this belongs to me <laughs> and um and then obviously through my friends who were into you know like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and um everything from Rich Against the Machine um we all just kind of like coalesced around these kind of these different kind of things because there wasn't anything to do with like scenes or genres for us at that age I mean it was just like this music was just like a revelation it was um, and it is that you know not to sound too contrived about it but it definitely spoke to you as an individual I mean not that I was searching for a kind of direction in life Mm -hmm. at that age I mean but it did like literally hit you like a like a like a thunderbolt, and it was just it became a part of who you were, and um, and then literally we would tape swap. A friend of mine whose older brother was into stuff like Alice in Chains and Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. We would just digest as much of this music that was completely like taking what we were used to, at least what I was used to. Things like that's why I love Bad Religion so much is because it took the elements of like harmony and things like that, which I really loved. I mean, instinctively loved, not, you know, was, you know, I've always loved the Beach Boys and things like that. And the harmonies was just like sped up. It was literally like turned up to like 211. Yeah. <laughs> and I plugged and literally with, you know, distortion. And it was just like, and fast as fuck. And it was just like, where, where have you been for the last, you know, so many years of my life? But I mean, I was only like, was I then? 13 <laughs> so yeah i mean it was it was a revelation it was a bit of the blue and then it's all snowballed from there do you so this this is a question we tend to ask everyone because we're called emo dad do you remember yeah. where where you were when you first heard that term emo oh um no <laughs> um, <laughs> next question yeah move on <laughs> no, I, I honestly I, mean, I couldn't tell you because it um probably around the time that i started doing a fanzine in my late teens mid to late teens um as i just kind of got into hardcore punk proper started discovering bands like gorilla biscuits and things like that that era mm um and it was probably if off if anything it was probably in some zine that i read in some relationship to a review of a band or something probably mineral or something related to mineral or something i guess okay um because i remember discovering mineral and then it was like 
Elliot, Texas is the reason, and then Mineral. And that was the, one of the first times in conjunction with a band that I, I chewed the, the term emo. And then that was like emo. Well, like, like what, Sesame Street kind of? Sure. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> you know, emo, emotional, hardcore, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, what? Okay. And um, I, mean, I, I do recall being puzzled by the genre a little bit. Um, sure. We still are. But, um, <laughs> I think a lot of people are because it's so broad. It seems to be a, such a broad genre these days. Yeah. Um, um, but um, I... If it wasn't for the fact that around that time as well that I kind of got into Fugazi, that it was just like, um, you know, I think that's what kind of drew me to it. And then it, all the the Discord stuff. And I kind of cottoned on to the, like the the genesis of the genre, so to speak, from, from very early on. For me, that's has always been my kind of, the, the the true north of emo for me is uh, is like the the origins of that of that era in the 80s in the in the us and and stuff so yeah so through mineral it kind of literally went quickly through to the the discord stuff and then that's cool so and and you were finding these things through zines was that like was there a local place or was this all like mail order no shit no i mean there was i mean obviously at that point i started going to shows and to punk shows and traveling because i mean my like my hometown of my steg is a small mining town Okay. And you're literally sandwiched in between loads of valleys. And you've either got, in terms of going to shows, I mean, up, in, up until that point, I, you know, I'd been going to like big shows. I'd gone to see the Mannix and the, the CIA in Cardiff, or it was then. I'd gone up with my mates to see Pearl Jam in London, which was, you know, I was like 15 at that point, something like that. And then, um, and um, so, like, getting into the hardcore scene and then going to like more kind of in-your-face kind yeah. of punk punk rock shows was was a, was another revelation. So um, yeah, and then there would be people there selling zines. Um, Fracture was one of the ones um, that I used to pick up quite a lot um, when I was around, which was kind of it was you know loads of contributors to that but um, one of the guys who printed it was responsible for it, it was based in cardiff and a, a zine called um, mass movement which was um a very big deal for me because i didn't really know what i was doing because i wanted to kind of contribute something and the zine thing was 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 something i was you know doing music and whatnot yeah but i mean i was just going to shows and seeing bands and writing about bands and listening to, to Jessica as much of the music was probably more important to me at that point and and mass movement Tim the guy who who, who founded it and, and was responsible for it lived in Bridgend which is like the bigger kind of town mm-hmm. next where I could go to and um, I met him at, a sh- at some shows and he kind of took me under his wing and um, him and his circle of friends and you know gave me a bit of a schooling really um in the nicest possible in the nicest possible way in terms of humor and in terms of musical education Um, amazing but i think that's what like that's certainly my memory of the scene at that time was that's how you found out about things it was sort of trial and error yeah yeah Right. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like you could, and you kind of had to have a, a source, a, a group of friends or somebody to show you things or give you tapes or whatever. To... Tim was like this almighty dungeon master wizard type kind of like <laughs> life level kind of like dude in my life. He okay. would literally like, I mean, I would kind of go to him 
I was in awe because he had like this little office room in his house with like CDs everywhere, everywhere. And he would okay. like, constantly tell me to, to listen to this and listen to this. And he would always try to get me to listen to things like Man of War and shit, which I always like. Okay. Like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But, uh, but no, I mean, he, he used to tease me a bit, but um, him, and his, him and his wife would always like, we'd always hang out on the weekends and it was really, really cool. And I would, he would like, I'd be like, I've heard this, like, like, I really like the, the movie life record, the new movie life record. He's like, if you like movie life, you need to listen to this. And he gave me a copy of, uh, you know, Hello Bastards by Lifetime. And Amazing. Um, <clears throat> I was just like, you are, you know, get your, get your head around that. And uh, there was, I, I mean, that's the beauty of this, the whole thing of, of music is that you're always, there's always stuff to discover. There's always things to learn about, no matter how old you get. So Amazing. <clears throat> And we were, um, so uh, Matt and I have been listening to your whole back catalogue in the last few days to sort of prepare for the interview. <laughs> yeah, it's been wicked. I was the best three days I've had in a long time. It was really good for Wow, me. very um, kind of you to say. And the, um, we wondered about a couple of Easter eggs in some of the song titles. And we wondered if okay. we were reading into things too much. Maybe. So, <clears throat> Out of Reach and On a Wire, is that Get mm -hmm. Up Kids nods? Or have we uh, made that a, up? On a wire is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, out of reach is just purely like, you know, coincidental. Okay. But, um, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and one then, out two. Yeah, one <laughs> out two. And there's the song on um, chapter and verse called The Jade Tree Years Were the Best. Oh, I, that, that's not even an Easter egg. That is, no, that's just like that's laid there. In your face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um, Oh, I mean, one of those things, isn't it? When you get to a certain point, then you just want to kind of pay respect to, I guess, to everything. I mean, at that yeah. point, we knew, you know, I think we that was our last record. We kind of knew it was our last record. And I mm. really wanted to end it with something of some level of significance and respect to the 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 scene that, that burst my band. So, uh, yeah, Great. why not? <laughs> um we'd love to play a song one to kind of sum up this time and we've talked about like a million bands but is there a particular song that means a lot to you from this time from a particular band that we could play oh like from my discovery period um, yeah johnny on the spot by texas is the reason awesome nice uh, fantastic choice. So, um, uh, emo here is Johnny on the spot by Texas is the reason. Okay, so let's um, let's start getting into the band to funeral for a friend. So, um, go right back to the early EPs, um, between order and model, four ways to scream your name. Um, I actually remember, uh, I think I was at university at the time, running kind of to the record shop uh, the day that your first EP came out um, to get hold of it. Um, and I'm, I was trying to remember, how did I know about it? <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> probably from like Punktastic or something you remember uh, back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there was such a hype around your band already um, when those EPs were dropping. Um, how you know things happened very quickly and in about 18 months or so we worked out you were signed you had a 
a few lineup changes. You recorded the two EPs. You won a Kerrang Award, Best UK Newcomer. How were you guys feeling this time? Like you must have thought we've we've nailed this. This is piece of piss. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish it was that simple. Um, no. I, I I wish. I mean, I I honestly can't. I mean, I all I remember that period is it being literally just nonstop, literally just chaos. Um, not bad chaos, just Good real chaos. busy. I mean, yeah, it was just like. I think we were just so shocked. It was like shock and all. We were literally just like, didn't know what the hell was going on. Mm. <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, we, you know, I I joined a band that didn't even sound like the band that ended up I ended up joining um, because of the the change in dynamic, and all of a sudden we write four songs. The first four songs, we go make a demo, and that demo is our first EP. And then that gets hyped beyond belief. And we hadn't even played a show by the time that EP had properly, properly come out, I think. By the time we'd, hey, by the time we'd even recorded the demo, we hadn't even played a show. Um, that's how quick it was. And then by the, but we literally recorded it in like Jan, in January 2002. And it came out somewhere along the line, I want to say summertime 2002, maybe. Um, and then we were on our first supporting tours by the end of 2002. By that time, by at least the end of 2002, we'd had management, yeah. <laughs> uh, an agent, and record labels really interested in what we were doing, which was just like peculiar. <laughs> I mean, we were, I mean, baff- I was, I mean, I. This was all like this was all completely fresh and new to me. I mean, I just right. wanted to, you know, I joined a band to do on a weekend to, you know, to get away from the general kind of strain of everyday, your daily, you know, work week. And um, and here we are, caught in record labels. And I think there was a le- there was a massive level of amusement about it all. I think you know we'd gone through le- you know lineup changes. We'd had people personal issues that people had dropped off and changed whatever and we solidified it we had a really good time playing shows we opened for anybody and everybody we could possibly open for locally we started playing some shows further afield our old drummer then went to work for a prom- um sjm the promotions agency so we ended up kind of getting support slots with um bands like voice it's fire and juliana theory and we opened up for phony remember phony like yeah. the new metal kind of band from yeah, yeah. around um where from red car i think or somewhere like that and um so we did like that was like a first tour like and uh, water down from germany we we, yep. we played with um and that was like just like a whirlwind of just of shit you know um literally learning how things went really quickly and then um and then we ended up doing, we wrote a couple of more songs in the interim. That was the second EP. And then we'd, at some point, then signed on the dotted line with um, with Infectious. I can't really remember exactly when that was. Um, must have been round about early spring 2003, possibly. Um, late, late winter, early spring 2003. Four Ways then came out. And that was it. That was it. Literally, boom, boom, boom. Studio, studio. Uh, casually dressed. 
<laughs> I wish I could make. I wish I could make. Like I honestly couldn't fill any. I I would struggle to fill in gaps because it literally was just the scatter shot. My my yeah. memory is so scatter shot because it literally was just constant movement, constant everywhere. And what were you guys? I mean, it was nice. Yeah, sure. of course. Within the band, what were you guys? Were you thinking? shit this is um getting a bit out of control were you like buzzing were you rolling with it you know what was the feeling with in the band uh, from what from what i can recall we were just equal parts thrilled equal parts bemused yeah i mean some sure. of us i think i mean it's 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 a very difficult thing when you're um i mean now i can i mean obviously it's quite more apparent to me now but back then i mean we had a very special working relationship with each other. I mean, we never knew, we didn't really know each other. We didn't grow up with each other like some bands do. You know, we never went through that process that some bands have of going through school together and, you know, in and out of bands with different people around you to create what was to be a definitive lineup. I mean, we all knew each other in some way or other through going to shows in South Wales. Mm-hmm. and through various contacts and various things and it was all just fortuitous really that we ended up in the the, the combination um that we did and i think we were all we, we've all got different personalities massively so but we all just seemed to just kind of it just seems to work and we were all just like totally like in awe of it to a point where i don't think we really believed that what was going on was going on until yeah. it was like too late <laughs> <laughs> until like uh, 12 years later <laughs> whatever yeah, until until like 2016 when you put it to bed you're like jesus <laughs> you know what just happened yeah yeah um, sharia have you got any particular favorite song from either of the eps that we can play is there any that, Ooh, uh, you, yeah you, um tell you, you what you like I do, yeah, and I'm I'm a big fan of um, Kiss and Makeup, or Better Off, of yep. um, Four Voices Screaming In. We don't play it often, but um, it's always been a favourite of mine to listen to and um, and to play whenever we do. Cool. Well, here it is. So around that around that time period, what what other music were you guys listening to, or bands that you were kind of looking <laughs> up to and thinking, oh? If only we could do that or get on tour with those guys. Um, I think at that point, I mean, a lot of the US stuff was figuring massively into into what we were would do and what we were digesting. I mean, we literally, like I said, we you know we'd be playing shows, we'd be kind of going off and playing support. So, I mean, bands like Boyz Fire have always been a band that. Um, I think like one of the key bands for us um, and get into for one of our very, very first tours get to, to kind of open for them was a, was a revelation and very humbling because they really respected our band as well, which was, which blew my right. mind, my mind completely <laughs> um, because they were one of the influences that I had of wanting to kind of do what I did in funeral in some way. So like, Bands like that and um, and Water Down were a significant band that we that we were listening to a lot of, which we ended up touring touring with as well. Thursday, um, a lot of the Victory stuff for that period. 
Um, I mean, to be honest, it was all just everything from like glass jaw through to 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 snap case through to. I mean, shit. It was just always on. I mean, whether yeah. you know, Darren. Darren was like a voracious listener of music. I mean, he would literally buy every. You go out if you're in some city on tour. You would go out, go to the shops, and just buy buy music. Just constantly buy music to listen to, whether it was shit or not. I mean, it was just like <laughs> it was, sometimes he sometimes he pick up some real shit, but. Um, <laughs> But I mean, it's it's you know, each to their own, isn't it? Everybody's got their own kind of tastes. And um, but I mean, around that time, it was lit. I mean, it was things like Hope's Fall and From Molten to Ashes and Cave In and oh, Poison the Well. Um, okay, was a significant uh, band for us um, that we kind of like before. I mean. Before Funeral properly started was was like literally a band that we really really loved. I mean, I can't do that stuff. I mean, sure, you know, I can't do that kind of vocal thing. But um, I tried <laughs> over the years to vary varying degrees of success, at least in my head. But um, but generally, I mean, I've always loved that heavier side of things. Everything from you know all the metalcore stuff. But you know, we had literally, if I had to pick, like. Comp- you know, a composite of, of bands that really kind of drove us to, I guess, that ended up distilling, we distilled the funeral sound out of, it would be, mm. it probably would be a mixture of like Iron Maiden, um, not that I like Maiden, but some of the guys do, um, okay. or at least bands like, not even Iron Maiden, but bands like In Flames, like okay. Swedish death metal stuff, At The Gates, uh, Grade, um, Boy Sets Fire, Snapcase, um poison the well thursday texas is the reason always forever would be a thing sam i am okay <laughs> um this is this is how mad it is bad religion and literally all these things kind of like consistently consistently melded to in some way to to create um this deftones even i mean that's the thing we've all got so many different kind of backgrounds yeah there's a handful of bands that we all unanimously agree and like right. together as a, as a unit so yeah and i crazy think that, yeah for sure <laughs> that's interesting yeah 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 and i think you can hear some of those for sure um but yeah definitely um and for anyone who's listening who doesn't know those bands like go and check that out or listen to our other please episodes do. please do yeah <laughs> um so i'm just gonna we wrote down some bullet points about 2003 because it seems insane. <laughs> and I, yeah. And I think this is also like, I'm not as cool as Mr. Buck. So the first time I heard your band was on like an MTV2 trailer. I think they used one of the breakdowns from the first record. I remember being obsessed with it because I was like, what is this? Because that kind of breakdown sound hadn't really come into the popular consciousness in the UK, I don't think, at that point. Um, and so I guess when I found out, I was extremely excited. And I remember you going, I remember, but I remember that feeling of, of going from who is this band to this band being everywhere. That's my experience of it in the, in the UK at that time. 
So you record casually dressed and deep in conversation. The record is certified gold in a year. You have three top 20 singles. You do a European tour opening for Iron Maiden. You support Linkin Park in the US and you headline second stage at Reading and Leeds. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. Yeah, that, those bullet points are actually bullet points that I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those, <laughs> yeah. Woo. Um, yeah. Yeah, is that's there, pretty insane, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there any part of that that particularly sticks out as like, like I mean, and, and I guess the band being fans, some of the members of the band being fans of Iron, Ma- of, uh, Iron Maiden, that must have been a real, what the fuck? Yeah, moment. I mean, yeah, I mean, we did, I mean, Casually Dressed came out in October 2003, mm-hmm. and that was around the time, that was our biggest, he- I mean, we started doing like club shows, but that, those were the, the next the tour for that album was literally like the the next step up from what we were doing um, after the EPs had dropped. Okay. I mean, throughout the summer, I mean, we'd been releasing singles and things and whatnot, and we did this really cool kind of concept behind the the whole promotion of it. We even did like videos for the B sides and things to, to, um, for the singles, which we we had this whole kind of like arty, you know, arty farty concept going on uh, in our heads which worked out really well because it, it 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 managed to do the job and literally everybody was just like we just bombarded people with our shit yeah um, that's that's really interesting to me so that that came from the band not the label because well, i we remember were, I mean, your we, yeah your promotion being excellent we we were very intensely involved in every aspect of what our band did. I mean, in that specifically with the art side of things, because okay. when it comes to the visual representation of, of what you do, I mean, when you spend as many years being, you know, loving music as much as we, we have and pouring over album covers and, and everything and whatnot, you want your first full length record to have some significance. Sure. And, um, I'm really glad that there was a team involved at the label who, and the label itself at the time were really just, they'd let us kind of go with it. And we, you know, there was ideas blowing around and we literally latched on to the whole Magritte kind of painting thing. Mm. Because we had the title well in advance of recording the album. I mean, we knew what the album was going to be called Casually Dressed and Deep in Conversation. And as soon as the art director at the label presented us with this kind of idea, it, those two things just kind of perfectly matched up in in our heads and um and we were like we've you know what can we do to utilize this this artwork and but spin it so that it works in conjunction with the actual the concept of the album for us mm-hmm. and that's where it came from and we literally just and then that's everything snowball videos upon videos upon videos we did everything that tried to incorporate all the b-side stuff was was more linked into the artwork but we literally just we, we weaved it through everything that we did and in that point you know with the singles and everything being completely to everything being so tied in so uh amazing yeah, that was that was pretty pretty special i mean it was literally we went from that headline tour the album drop headline tour which was like 2000 capacity we played the story in london which is still one of my all-time favorite funeral shows we've ever played and then we were invited out to open for Iron Maiden uh, across Europe, two months, which was, I'll be honest, two of the most harrowing months of my entire life. Um, <laughs> How come? Because A, I'm, I mean, 
there's nothing worse in my mind than throwing yourself into a pit of wolves every night. I really. I mean, significantly. I mean, I, I, I knew. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not really a fan of Maiden musically, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the guys in the band are. But it was an opportunity to. We couldn't. I mean, we were personally invited by the band to sure to perform, and we we agreed. And if anything, that 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 tour allowed us to grow massive balls. Okay. <laughs> um, because the, the, their audience didn't give two fucks who we right. were. I mean, sometimes sometimes we played to the backs of people. They turned around and, and waited for us to finish, and it literally. Every day having to get up, you know, know that you're going to spend 40 hours going through that um, was a little disconcerting. Because yeah, I if, bet you, it was. If, if you grow up appreciating music and loving music and just playing for people who love music, who loved, who appreciate what you were doing to then be faced, that was the first kind of realization that you've got to work. This is a job, like, not really, right. I mean, it wasn't that kind of thing, but the, you've, we've really got to work to kind of present. And we literally just, after the first two shows, we just head down, boom. We roll it, we literally hammered them with music. We couldn't even get, we, we didn't even allow them to get chance of Maiden, because they would literally, if you give them time, they would just chant Maiden between your songs or over you what you did. <laughs> okay. So you would just floor it. You were just like, boom, boom, boom. And then we just, if we did, there was Maiden chance coming, we would just join in. Maiden, Maiden, yeah. Maiden, fuck you, next song, boom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, play. Um, and then we, we we did that across mainland Europe, which was heavy going. And then we, we ended up in the UK, which was a little bit easier to relate to. The audiences, at least they didn't turn around um, Okay. when we played, but I mean, they weren't really, I mean, I think we knew that we were getting somewhere when we actually sold one T-shirt at a show in Sheffield. Wow. You'd cracked uh, the I think maiden that crowd. First, <laughs> that was the first piece of merch I think we sold the entire two months. And no it was way. like, um, yeah, it was... Hmm. Um, I think it was because that was the one show where, I mean, we were on the same management company as well. And their manager came to watch the show. And by that point, we were literally coming to the end of the run. We had lost our minds completely. <laughs> um, we were listening to, before we played that set, we were listening to, literally, we were blasting uh, Three Inches of Blood all over the, the backstage uh, dressing room. I don't know if you guys right. remember that band, Three Inches of Blood. But it's... they were like a full-on like metal kind of, like a full-on, like imagine Dragon Force, but with a more hardcore yeah, background the, and a bit the more The name serious. rings a bell. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's somewhat of a piss take, but very, very good for what it was. Yeah. Um, and um, and we would just, and like all songs were like about like literally Dungeons and Dragons type shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> and um, so literally, we couldn't at that point we couldn't give two fucks. So we went on stage, and every song I remember introducing every song as either about orcs or goblins, <laughs> and um, and to the point where. After like the sixth song, I could even get the audience to, you know, I even said, can you guess what this next song's about? And some lone dude in the front, you know, clad in denim was just like, Orcs? <laughs> yes, Orcs. This song's called Juno. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and, um, 
Yeah, and, and then and then we got a bollocking from Maiden's manager. Manager came into our <laughs> dressing room at the at the end, and literally ripped seven shades of shit into us because apparently he thought that we were kind of making fun of the Maiden audience. Oh, and wow. um, yeah, and I felt like too like that that big. Yeah. That point. I mean, I was in my twenties, and my like I'm being made to feel cool. That's that's significant. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that was. That was hairs on the chest kind of um, touring. And yeah, and then, you know, Linkin Park, we did the Project Revolution thing. We were invited over there to participate in their tour with... Um, that was a fun tour. That was like our second time in the US, our first proper summer over there. And it was almost like a warp tour style kind of traveling festival thing where Lincoln Park would have, they, they brought corn out, the used. And, um, and we played on a stage with um, loads of different bands. We played on a stage with um, Instruction, which was members of Aerotype 11. Yeah, I remember. Um, um, which were really good friends because I, I was a big um, Aerotype 11 fan of funeral toured with Instruction early on um, in 2003 um, in the UK. So that was a big deal because they had members of like quicksand and, and stuff and everything. So it was, it was a very, very big deal. Um, and we played with bands like, with bands like Les and Jake, Autopilot Off. We even played off shows with Les and Jake, which is really cool because I've always had a soft spot for Les and Jake. Yeah, so, totally. Um, and um, I, I literally, some real, real fun shows with those guys. And then, um, and yeah, came back. We actually were over there in the summer and then we ended up having to fly back. This is a rock fucking star this shit gets. We literally were flown back by the label. The label, you've got to come back and play Reading and Leeds. <laughs> so we were literally in the US playing playing to like 10 people. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, because at that point, I mean, that audience was, I mean, we'd done a headline. Well, no, we hadn't done a headline. Too. We'd done a tour opening for From Open to Ashes, Cave In, and every time I die, and that was nice our first lineup. US US <laughs> tour experience, which was a hell, which was so much fun and and a big learning curve. And then we were on this Lincoln Park thing, and it was just like some it was like a summer holiday for us. I mean, some days you'd play for 30, 40 people, fifty people, maybe a hundred if you're lucky. And some days you'd play for for six. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Played, uh, I mean, that's that was it. Like, I mean, the tour went all across the US, and then we, I think we played a show and we played to like 10 people and we flew back to the UK. We missed a couple of state, uh, state um, US shows and we flew back to the UK to headline the Radio One stage at Reading and Leeds. And that was like rammed. So we went from playing like to 10 to between 10 to 50 people <laughs> to a tent rammed with people. Wow. Um, jet lagged out of our minds. <laughs> um, to be told that our record had gone gold, um, which was nuts. Um, and then we decided to play a new song <laughs> that, we'd, <laughs> that, we'd, that we'd written that we'd written like about maybe. Hmm, a week into the Lincoln Park tour, maybe a little bit before, but and um, we thought we'd air her out, you know, just because a we were jet lagged and we we didn't really give a fuck, and we we played Roses for the Dead for the first time. Okay. And um, 
and that went down really well, it seemed to go down really well. I can't remember, can't really remember it, but I remember we played it and I really loved playing it. But um yeah, and then and then we went back to play the six people the day after. <laughs> <laughs> you, went back, back. You, you went back to the States. Yeah, we had literally like a week and a Carried half on. left on the tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh yeah, so oh, yeah, mate. big, 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 yeah, lots of what? lots of traveling for <laughs> for, for weird shit. What a head fuck. <laughs> Yeah, completely. Um, I feel like we should play a song. Um, should we should we play Roses for the Dead? Or do you want to leave that to the later? <laughs> no, hey, you can play I mean it's significant because I mean in from where we are right now in the story, okay, that's the great of the song. So yeah, well, Roses um, for the Dead. So yeah, so imagine you're in a tent in Reading and this is the first time you hear this. This is uh Roses for the Dead by Funeral for a Friend. So then, so you you went back to the states, finished that tour, and then, am I right in thinking you then pretty much went straight into the studio for to do hours? Yeah, I mean we were demoing a couple of um, of songs. We ended up demoing a couple of tracks that we had started writing. I mean Chris literally didn't stop. He was literally just kind of bashing out songs upon song ideas upon song ideas, and. Um, I mean, it was a big time for him, you know, he was, he was just married and so, and he felt the pressure, I think probably more than any of us. And even, but even then, I think there wasn't really a pressure to kind of, to better anything. It was just, we still had this drive and energy to, to just to create. So, I mean, I would write um, and, you know, Chris would write. And then we'd all get together and knock these ideas. Usually at Darren's garage, we were still using, pretty sure we were still using Darren's garage at that point with his little kind of tape machine, kind of knocking out ideas and things. And, and then we went to um, a studio, John Mitchell's studio down in Reading to record some proper demos, like, you know, some stuff that would you could actually physically probably put out on a release yeah <laughs> um just to you with these songs were kind of you know so we could give the the label a bit of a because at that point infectious had been swallowed up by the whole warner brothers um okay, yep. machine so we were on atlantic records at, at that point then um so yeah we were just kind of you know knocking together a bunch of songs to to throw to the label um which they got really excited by and then we were looking at, I, I guess we were looking at producers. And um, I think we ended up, I do recall there was, conver- I mean, we had conversations with Terry Date. Um, I mean, that was, he was very, very high on everybody's list. But I, I think we ended up, Matt Wallace came to a show in the US, in LA that we played. I can't remember what tour that was with, but I remember I Am The Avalanche played with us at that show, Key Club in in, in, in LA. And, um, and Matt Wallace was there. I mean, he did like, you know, Faith No More and shit. Yeah, <laughs> and right. it was just like, mm, we got like, I mean, we worked with, Co- I mean, we worked with Colin, who like Colin Richardson, who we worked on Casual Dress with, was significant in the uk and european like metal world just you know working from everybody from carcass to you know you know it you name it anything you know proper metal related and our stuff was a little was a little bit of a departure for him but you know with the budget and obviously being with 
you know, we wanted to work with, you know, some of our dream list producers. And I'm kind of glad Terry won out because, I mean, I think for me, as much as like the Deftones, everybody, you know, in, in my band loves Deftones. Um, Chris is a huge Pantera nut. And Terry okay. done, and, and Terry had, had done, um, you know, Pantera's, you know, records, and so Chris was like literally Terry did, Terry did, Terry did, Terry did, Terry did, Terry did. <laughs> I mean, but he'd also done. I mean, he'd come with a glowing, you know, review from um, from Dan Carter from A, who yep. um, obviously does the rock show and stuff. But at that point, um, he A had done their, um, I think, Hi-Fi Serious, I think was done by Terry I want to say it was but I'm not sure maybe I got that wrong but uh, I'll um, look that up. but we um but me and Dan had two album uh, I had an album by the Terry had done in common that we both really loved and um and so I quizzed him I said well, what was it like working with Terry and he was just like dude dude's a dude's a legend dude you've got to work with Terry if you if you can work with Terry so um so yeah, I mean, he came to his shows. Whenever we played in the US, he'd come out, we'd chat. And I liked him because he was very keen on capturing the band in the purest sense. Like yep. the way he saw us live, he wanted to capture that, not just kind of get everything down, like, you know, clinically perfect. He wanted to capture the energy that he saw, that he was witnessing when he saw us play, which is cool. I mean... I don't know if the other guys felt the same way. I mean, I'm not sure if they expected us to deliver, you know, to our, you know, our, you know, ours to not like a Deftones album or something, because I don't think it was ever going to be, it was ever Terry's intention to make us sound like anything other than ourselves, just the best possible version that he could capture. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, 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 we went into that full swing and then we were into 2005 and we were in, we you know we left for the US to record hours with with him in Seattle. Amazing. And it in was, uh, in Pearl Jam Studios, I believe. Is that right? Wait, I mean, we started off in um, a studio called um, a Studio X, which used yeah. to be called Bad Fat Animals, um, which is significant in you know music history in itself because it was owned by um, the Heart in a, in a band Heart, their the sisters in there. Um, so it was created by them, but it literally it's, it's every fucking band. I think is you know, any Seattle band at least has come through there and has, has used it. Um, so we were there initially for a couple of weeks and then, um, Pearl Jam wanted to use the studio. Ah. So they off. So, uh, um, you should have told them to they fuck already off. Had, they already had their studio, and we were like, "But they've already got a studio. Got a studio." Um, and so they offered they offered us a swap. They um, they literally just said, "You know, if, you know, they, we can use their studio, gratis, I think, or whatever, or at least for a reduced um, thing, if they could um, come in and use Studio X." So, so, so let me get this right. So Pearl Jam own a studio, but they wanted to use the studio that you were in. And, then and the offer was you go yeah. and use theirs. <laughs> yeah, which to be okay. honest with you, I I could I was I was very happy about to be honest. Yeah, why not? I mean, um, I'm not going to turn that down. Um, 
I mean, most of the stuff, by the time we moved anyway, I mean, most of the stuff had already, like the main um, music, all the musical stuff, like the drums, guitars, and bass had already been tracked. Um, I know, and in the, as, as an animatable style of, you know, for a friend, we ended up kind of deciding that we needed to write a couple more songs in the studio because we felt like we didn't really have the record. Okay. <laughs> So we ended up, um, <laughs> and this is the this is the it's always the way. It's always the songs that you kind of spend the least time on ended up becoming songs that are significant for the band. And um, we literally bashed out history in about an hour. <laughs> okay. And uh, and Darren, we we ended up writing monsters in um, in about forty five minutes, I think. Um, and then we tracked those. We we jammed them. That was the beautiful thing. Terry was so kind of chill and so kind of easygoing. We were just like, you know, you so fluid. It was such a fluid process that we would be like tracking, you know, as a band. No click tracks, no nothing. You would just play as a band. But for me, I couldn't really track with the band at the initial time of that studio because I'd blown my voice up. We played a couple of warm-up shows before we headed into the studio. Mm-hmm. And I'd completely screwed my voice up so I couldn't participate so I had to basically just mum, hum, hum along when they were playing songs just to figure out if the tempo they were playing at them at was I could sing along to okay <laughs> it wasn't yeah, too yeah. fast wasn't too slow and um so yeah I think that I mean we there's this I mean it's odd but there's definitely more of a a punk rock energy to some of the, the heavier songs in the album because they are significantly faster than their demo versions um okay which works for me because you know i like it to be a little bit more kind of adrenalized and mm. and in your face but um so yeah we ended up kind of smashing the album out doing some weird fantastic stuff we went to, i did all the vocals in litho which is pearl jam studio and that was an amazing experience for me because i was on a real downer at that point i was beating myself up the fact that my voice was not working as it should and I was real, real pissed at myself. Felt like everybody else was doing the work and, and putting mm. the effort in, and I couldn't really get up there to in, in my head to the level that they were doing shit. And um, and that's where Terry is literally such a was such a godsend because he he settled me down. He was like the he was like the Matt Whisperer. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, you down. Um, I mean, it's 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 weird. I mean, he literally. I had so many, you know, anxieties that I didn't, I didn't even know that I had about what I was doing to myself at that point in the studio, making that album. I was going to quit. I was going to do everything. I was just, my brain was in a real fucked up place. I was really down on myself. And I was just, I was worried that what I was doing was just, was, wasn't good. And we try to do the whole traditional kind of recording vocals the usual way headphones on standing mic blah 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 just wasn't connecting so aside from you know at that point you know i'd started drinking again maybe a year and a half prior to going into the studio probably about 2000 and 2003 2004 i started drinking again i was straight edge up until that point from my mid-teens to to then and um, and we would sit down, we would have like, you know, we would just talk, beer, talk, mm-hmm. beer. What, you, just, he would quiz me. He would just be like some weird kind of like 
therapist. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Day being my therapist. And he would just, you know, you'd find the point where I would be comfortable and he would be like, so, you know, where do you, when you're, when you're not doing this whole shit, like when you're singing around at your home, what, where do you feel most comfortable doing it? I said, well, I usually, since the band started, I usually kind of, to clear my head, I just, you know, jump in the car, grab a couple of CDs and drive around my, my hometown for an hour or so, just blasting tunes and singing along. Cool. So just freedom, he said, I said, yeah, yeah. And what you know, and said, do you feel more comfortable when you're on stage and you're actually like you know physically putting your body into what you're doing? I said, yeah, I guess so. So cool. So we just we waltz into the live room. We dismantle all the vocal booth stuff, and he brings in two massive floor monitor speakers that we use on stage to have the kind of everything you know blasted mm -hmm. back at us. And um, he gave me a really long microphone lead. He gave me an SM58 microphone, which is the exact one that I was using on stage. And um, he said, we're going to play the tracks back through the monitors. Go nuts. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So literally, um, apart from one song on the album, all the songs are tracked like that. So there's, I mean, I'm literally, wow. there are elements where the microphone's feeding back, where I'm out of breath, where I drop a microphone. Um, Monsters is the only track which we did kind of traditionally, um, mm -hmm. I think. And then uh, Drive was, I sang that. Um, I think I was drunk at the time, upside down um, in his pickup truck, hanging over the seat of his pickup truck. Because um, wow. he'd, he'd wired his pickup truck for um, he'd like real fucking sweet speakers in his pickup <laughs> truck. So he wired the track through to the speakers. He was playing like the music through the speaker system of the thing. So I was just singing along, singing the song a couple of times, I think two or three times. I think my voice went on the third time, but this, the, I think the first take was the one that we, um, that we used. Um, anything? And that's how we did I it. So. I mean, I mean, for me, it was literally, a, you know, freedom. I was like, wow, I must, that's probably why it, out of all the albums we've done, it's my favorite. Cause it's got a quite a significant kind of, personal triumph over adversity kind of moment for me yeah, yeah. at that point wow what a uh, what a cool story so um we should we should play a song from that album i reckon um so what was the nuttiest one to record <laughs> so let's go with that Ooh. i think the 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 one i mean yeah, let's play the one where I literally crack open a beer and hang over a back seat in his pickup truck, truck to, to sing, uh, Drive. Drive. Aptly, aptly named song. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so this is Drive off of the album Hours. So this is, um, we try and ask all our guests this um, because 2006 is when emo goes mental. <laughs> <laughs> and it's oh, when yeah. Oh, yeah. fallout boy explodes and the whole thing happens did you feel any of that um i think that was about the time that we were transitioning out of having our hair being longer than most and um, <laughs> and, um i think we transitioned out of the whole thing which ended up becoming quite like a like a uniform for sure. It's not like technically against everything that punk rock's meant to be, but uh, yep. <laughs> um, 
I mean, it was it was weird. I mean, the 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 long hair. I mean, two thousand and six was a period where I think we had just kind of had enough of. I mean, emo wasn't really a dirty word, but it's not a term that I considered our band to be fully fully immersed in. Sure. I mean, yes, we have history with the genre. And there are literal, you know, points you can pick out. I mean, I can speak for, for days upon the, my favorite bands, but Funeral for a Friend in itself was an amalgamation of all these different things. So for sure. they, and then everybody started labeling what we were doing as emo, which was like, no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. I mean, not even post-hardcore really did it just. I mean, sure. really, I mean... I mean, we ended up just going, taking, you know, just, you know, rock. I mean, all the guys in my band were literally, who didn't have a uh, maybe more of a punk rock background. Like I did was just kind of like got, got sick of it. And we're just like, yeah, rock. We're just a rock band, you know? Yeah. It was a rock band. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we, I mean, we, we, we definitely on the crest of the wave that, that crept up. And I think ours came out at a point and capitalized on, on that momentum that the genre kind of had coming over from the US. I mean, we were lucky enough that we were in the right place at the right time with the right record and we dressed appropriately, I guess, for one for, for media sure. purposes and for for magazines to have like a you know a, some something to kind of to, to gawk at. But I think when people start, I mean I got really frustrated with it because imagery like that kind of thing has never really been something I've put much stock in. So when kids started coming to shows, styling their hair, like my hair grew, hmm. I never used to have my hair cut. I used to have a friend of mine cut my hair because I hate to go into have to hairdressers. And if it got too long, she would cut my hair. So my hair grew in a particular way. It's sure. always annoying. It's always annoying. And even my wife finds it annoying because my hair just is very, very straight. And, um, and when I did let it grow, during the heyday of the band, um, it had a, an uh, unexpected knock-on effect in that people would then suddenly turn up to shows with my looking like my head. Yes. <laughs> um, which was a little disconcerting. Um, <laughs> why, why are you having your hair the, haircut the way my hair grows? I mean, it's not, yeah. That's, I can understand if I, I could, if I had my hair styled in a particular way, I could understand that if it was a style, but like my hair grew, like that, it was weird. But um, so yeah, and then I rebelled against that and shaved it all off around about the time we did ours. So um, went down to a grade three, I think. And um, Wicked. yeah, and I flaunted it. It, it literally it was such, such it, was, it was so weird for people that I think a journalist from Kerrang! was covering us when we were playing like Warped in the States and set, literally thought that Funeral had a new singer. What happened to that? Really? <laughs> yeah, so, really? um, yeah, very, 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 very strange. But, um, yeah, I mean, that whole thing, I think we always felt a little bit outside that when it became far more mainstream okay. at that point. I mean, we were still very focused on what we were doing, doing our thing. Um, and that was generally it. I mean, we were just, I mean, we were still touring hours at that point. So we were literally going to the US, doing Warp Tour, uh, being immersed in 
the punk rock culture there and stuff and whatnot. Just like literally, I mean, for me, Vans Warped Tour was like a dream come true because mm. since I was sure. a kid, I'd idolized that. I mean, all the bands, you know, Pennywise, Bad Religion, we were literally on the same thing. I literally walked up to Brian Baker and just said, hey, you're Brian Baker from 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 Dag Nasty and Minor Threat. I love you. And then walked away. <laughs> <laughs> um, I couldn't I literally right. that's all I could manage that's all I could manage I mean I didn't even have the guts to even approach any I think I spoke to Greg Hetson for Bad Religion for like two minutes once okay and I I, I think he spoke and I was just like yeah Greg Hetson from Bad Religion <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is nuts um, so yeah I mean our existence was in this bubble of things I mean we were aware of what I mean, we didn't put much stock in what people were saying about us, what people were writing about us, what people referred to. I always did really well. I mean, it more so than what we imagined because we weren't writing a song to be, like an album to better the last one. You know what I'm saying? We weren't mm. trying to kind of reach some kind of fear level. We just had like our goal was to write music that we loved and that we liked. And then when people connected to it in such a way, on the headline tour as we did um i had people you know, when you start when you have people swarming you outside the venue that's when it became a little bit like i realized that the genre or at least the thing that we existed in had kind of reached a particular momentum and a mm -hmm. saturation point because there was there were more and more people coming to the shows um more people discovering the band and with that obviously comes the you know dilution of the band's background and history and the knowledge of the band it becomes more of like a commercial thing so people just didn't realize that you know people like me like their private sphere and private space and right you know i would every city we go to i would bagger off on my own just to kind of find a bookshop or a thing and, and you know okay and then I would literally be walking back and then the entire side of the venue where people were queuing up. And this is my ignorance to it as well, because I didn't even realize that this was even potentially something would literally all run across the road. And oh, wow. we were like no. autographs, photos, everything, just literally. And I was on my own and I was in the middle of literally a growing circle of people. And I had a mild panic attack. I bet you did. Oh, really? Yeah, and I would, I would, I would tune out. I would, I would guitar tech at the time realized um, I'd seen it, and he literally, you know, swam, swam through the, the tide of, of kids, and um, to yank me out. And I just, I, that was the, you know, that was a real tough time because I, 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 I do like speaking to people mm -hmm. about our band if they want to speak about our band, but I can usually, because of the kind of my social inadequacies i can usually manage about five people <laughs> okay um <laughs> so anything more than that really does give me um give me anxiety and um yeah so, which is very weird for me as a front man of a band like, <laughs> to say but um yeah it's um yeah it was very very challenging when the band um elevated in that time period to that level then probably the biggest that we ever were at that point i think um yeah so there was some significant kind of dynamic changes kind of going on and personally as well i mean i had just got married 
2006. Mm-hmm. Um, so relationships were very much a factor in our band life. Um, our private sphere was becoming more important to us. The realization that we were becoming a bit more exhausted by the whole the whirlwind. The whirlwind yeah. is catching up with us a little bit. Um, and the pressure then, I mean, that's the first time going into that we felt the pressure because we were touring and touring touring. The shows are great. Uh, and then we realized that we, you know, Chris had already started kind of writing for the next album and are trying to write for the next album, um, which, you know, it was the case. I mean, there was a lot of trying <laughs> for the next okay. album, which was on the horizon, which was being, you know, the powers that be, because um, we were obviously a part of a machine then at that point that, um, you know, you would, you know, the album had done well you know built on the success of the previous one was doing well in the states <clears throat> what's next so yeah pressure that's when we felt the pressure i think yeah yeah i can i can imagine very much so do you do you, do you think that pressure led to the grander vision of like the concept record <clears throat> um I think burnout led to the grand um, <laughs> idea. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay. A desperation, I think. Okay. And it was. I mean, it was. Um, for me, it was struggling to find something to latch onto to be creative because I. <sighs> Tales came around, and if I could go back, and I think if we all and everybody in the band could go back and literally tell ourselves, take a year off. Right. You know, you need to take a year off. <laughs> yeah. Um, we should have because um, we were so like bent out of shape. We could, I think, we could really. We, we were even struggling to communicate with each other. There was bickering okay. going on. There was like factions, everybody against so and so. We were all picking fights with each other because we were at our wits' end, and mm. none of us could really put our finger on it. I mean, we went into trying to, you know, trying to write that album was a, was it was so difficult. I mean, the pressure, knowing that, I mean, knowing that you had to go in to kind of create something when you know deep down that you spent everything on the last four years that you have and there's nothing, nothing in the reserve tank to feed yeah. that creativity is a little distressing. I mean, I think they, I mean, we didn't really know how to articulate that kind of worry or that that stress so we just kind of plowed it you know we kind of put our earmuffs on and just kind of you know just soldiered on i i mean i ended up doing um in a mad effort to try to pull myself out of it i ended up um writing a completely different album in a completely different genre of music going back to stuff that i listened to before i even got into punk rock Mm. to almost reaffirm my ability at that point to write something to create something without any stresses that I could do it by myself on my own to, to almost to clear my palate a little bit, you know what I mean? Because sure. So I ended up doing um, a, a record with a bunch of friends, even like pulling songs together that I'd been writing through the process before I even joined funeral and during funeral. So I ended up doing like a, and I called it the secret show. I was trying to figure out what to do because it all sounded like folk americana kind of stuff um which i listen to i've always loved i mean it's always been something 
in my musical background. And um, and they, it worried the guys massively because they saw that I was putting a lot of effort into doing this side project, which Atlantic Records caught wind of and decided to want to um, to do something with. I guess they figured that <laughs> if the singer of one of their kind of successful rock bands was going to do an album, I, maybe they are anticipating it to be like a funeral for a friend, with the, but just by me. Sure. <laughs> kind yeah. Of, um, yeah, yeah. I don't think they were really prepared for literally, you know, a, a country album um, with with pedal steel, harmonica and everything. <laughs> you know, it was like, um, so yeah, the guys were really, because I mean, we were kind of going into a room in a rehearsal space in Cardiff every day from like 11 a.m. till 6 p.m. trying to write funeral songs. Wow. And it was soul destroying. Yeah. It was soul destroying. Uh, because we were just, none of it seemed to, to gel. None of it seemed to work. None of it seemed to have any hold on us at all. And I couldn't get my head into writing anything for funeral at that point. Mm-hmm. So I ended up, um, like everything, I ended up latching onto Darren and Ryan and there, there was always a joke that we had with our A and R guy at the time that we were threatening to write, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, our Dark Side of the Moon, and they would okay. always say, and they would always never write a concept album; it'll kill your career. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, like a bull, like a like a bull to a red flag. Yeah, <laughs> I, let's do it. Uh, I came, I came running, I came running for that red flag. I was, but I, I was so desperate. I mean, I was trying to write something at the end of the. I was during the middle of the hour cycle. I was toying with the idea of doing something dystopian. I tried okay. to write a concept album because I was. What was I? What was I? What was I? In, what was I listening to? And I thought I was pretty genius. I think it was say anything. I think, or even like, even the Coed and Cambria stuff was pretty interesting to me at that point, how you yep. can, uh, but right. then again, but, um, and then I discovered through Darren, Darren is like a lexicon of everything historically musical. He could just, you know, um, I discovered pr- prog rock and, um, and through prog rock, I discovered the magic of, you know, the, the beauty, the, the majesty of the full blown articulated yeah. concept album. And so I, I went into everything from, I literally went into everything from Yes, every fucking Yes album. Because my brain being the way it's wired, if I, if I find something interesting, I've got to go literally deep diving into it. Yeah. So I'm in Genesis, um, Dream Theater, um, Styx, everything. I literally, Amazing. Uh, Rush, yep. uh, Marillion, everything. Uh, and wow. literally, um, <laughs> And that's how Tales Don't Tell Themselves came came about. Um, through me having a writer's block and deep diving into the world of progressive rock. Amazing. Um, <laughs> which, which I mean, which then kind of tuned the rest of the band into into stuff because we start as as the I was building the concept, which in hindsight wasn't really that much of a concept. It was kind of cliff notes. It was like a loose narrative. <laughs> It wasn't as in-depth as I kind of was hoping that it was going to be when I was writing it. Um, and I had all this planned. I mean, I had like, you know, we were had 
by that point, as we were, as I was getting picking up steam with the concert, I was becoming more invested in the enthusiasm. You know, I think we had we took like two weeks off, which was a lifeline for us. We had a two week break. I developed some of this concept stuff. Um, I was watching hours upon hours of Peter Gabriel live footage because I love Peter Gabriel. Um, <laughs> I do. I love Peter Gabriel. I mean, I love Peter Gabriel. Um, and I've since literally that is his records and Genesis records and all these records have become. Uh, I love. I've. I've loved. I. I do love them. And um, that's the beauty of discovery and music, isn't it? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we ended up thrashing out songs, and we 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 caught a stride. And I think it is we kind of realized that we just had to give it up to, rather than pushing it to a certain direction, we just gave it up to, to where things were going. And through that, we ended up deciding to work with uh, Gil Norton, who'd worked with uh, Food Fighters and Pixies and because we felt that the stuff that we were writing was definitely more broader musically, um, less techy, mm -hmm. um, and um, more melodic. Uh, everything was was leaning was was kind of going that way to a degree anyway. But it was just, I think, in order for us to kind of like settle the demons of of our writer's block, we were like, we're just gonna, you know, we all just accepted that we were gonna have to. You know, we were going to tell the label that we had to throw the kitchen sink at this album. Right. And um, and we did. I mean, we literally just wrote the concept album. Or I wrote the concept album, but my band didn't. Okay. <laughs> because then when it came, because then when it came time to put the album together, I had this narrative with all the songs worked out. And then they decided that they were going to, you know, that song worked better there. This song worked better there. So the story uh, is a bit cockamamie because it goes, <laughs> it doesn't go in any with any fashion at all. It's if anything, it's an avant-garde. It's a, it's probably like a, a French New Wave cinema interpretation. Brilliant. <laughs> of, of, a, of a of a of a prog album. Um, yeah, it is. It's probably a yes yeah, black and white Czech film. That's what it is. Um, <laughs> mad madness. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's literally, I mean, that was a bit heartbreaking for me to have that literally spoiled at the end where it's all muddled up. Like the first song is the last song. And vice oh, really? Versa. Yeah, I mean, Into Oblivion, I mean, Into Oblivion, which was actually meant to be called, the original title was Reunion, in in brackets, Into, into, into Oblivion, was meant to be the last song in the story because it's the return. It's Right, that uh, makes more sense. Yeah, so, um, and yeah, so my narrative just, you know, fell asunder, <laughs> lost, <laughs> lost, lost, lost to democracy. <laughs> uh, but um, I mean, it, it was, I mean, it, it works. I mean, for me, at the time, I think we were so busy. <sighs> Again, like everything, the expectation, the funeral, the business, you know, everything, the, the speed with that, which everything went, that we were so like just immersed in what this album was. Um, I, and we were so grateful I think that we had an album at the end of it yeah. um, it caused some friction within the band because certain musicians weren't allowed to flex their particular muscles in a way that they wanted to be flexed okay. um, they were reined in a little bit which was a bit difficult for some 
Um, but we ended up producing an album, which for all intents and purposes, yes, is, a, is on paper as being a funeral for a friend album. But I think if you speak to the members of the band, they would probably say and suggest that it should have been released as a under a different name or as a mm. side project. Um, right. Because even though there are elements of, of us in there, I mean, it, it, it literally takes things to an extreme. It was like an experiment, like a, and in, in that way, I mean, and I don't know if you should utilize, you know, we didn't know you don't use these, you know, things as, as an experiment. I wouldn't say it's, it, it was our, um, our Bad Religions Into the Unknown album. Sure. <laughs> when they when they dropped a, a prog album as their second album um but um i mean some of those songs are very much um at home with our audience um to this very day which is i guess a testament still a testament to the songwriting on that record um but we toss everything on there i mean there's choirs there's orchestras there's pianos i mean my favorite song on that album is sweetest wave which i think ryan and i kind of predominantly manufactured um because i mean that was the first funeral album where all of us as a band wrote okay for the records i mean um up until that point it was predominantly um chris and myself with arrangement with by uh ryan and gareth as well and darren would write the odd song um but up and, and then but we were determined to kind of approach I think that's maybe the way the process was difficult because it was a complete, we wanted to try a different kind of approach. And um, yeah, so it was the first album that everybody had their fingers in the, in the pie, so to speak. So it is what it is. I mean, I, in, now at, at my ripe old age, I, I, I think it's a great fucking album. I mean, it's a part, I wish I didn't go, I hadn't gone the, the, um, the concept album thing for the lyrics side of things, but, there's enough ambiguity in there that you don't really have to pay attention to the thread. Yes, yeah, it's, it's. I agree. It's, yeah, so I mean, it's that's why it fails as a concept album, but <laughs> especially as it's um, in the wrong order. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I wasn't all uh, you know good about it. Let's uh, let's play a song, which um, I have a favourite, but I'm not going to try and push it on you. No, no, let me know. Let, you... I'm interested. But what is your favourite from that? Album? I've always loved um, All Hands on Deck Part 2, Open Water. I love the both. I love the both things. Because like you, <laughs> I discovered that I'm a massive prog fan around this time period as well. So I love the whole thing as a piece of music. But the second part I particularly like. Oh, Brett, that is the one... That is the only part of the album where those two songs are at least meant to go okay. in that particular order. Um, if you have the capacity, I would very much like you to play, if you're brave enough, to play All Hands on Deck Part 1 and Part 2. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, session. we can do that. Yeah, why not? Let's, um, let's embrace the spirit of prog and have about, I don't know, whatever it is, like 12 minutes <laughs> of music. Um, please enjoy All Hands on Deck Parts 1 and 2. Nice. So um, we're, I'm going to kind of whiz through uh, four years now because I'm conscious that we're taking up at your 
um, precious sleep time. The bags under my eyes. But I mean, from that from that album, you you guys moved on with Memory of Humanity, and then um, Welcome Home Armageddon, and the two EPs, and you went much more harder rock metal hardcore influences were coming in the lineup was changing a bit um was that responsible for the different sounds was did you feel like like you you spoke about the struggles of the the previous album and kind of getting it out there and getting it together um how how was it during the recording these albums were you, did you feel a bit more kind of off the leash and kind of let's go back to what we want to do or had you got yeah. sick of prog rock by then <laughs> i don't think you could ever get sick of prog rock um <laughs> no i mean i think it was like i said it was an experiment and it was our last album for warners um yeah as well so we um i think there was a an opportunity to renegotiate a contract but we opted against it um we decided to try doing an album on our own which was mm-hmm. memory and humanity which was also somewhat of a failed kind of experiment a little bit because that was kind of like a rush to kind of put out um, an album because we were then told that Warner Brothers were wanting to put out a best of, which was mm. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which didn't really, you know, we struggled with that a little bit. But um, so we kind of like, you know, we were told that we have to get an album out before they do that. So we kind of rushed an album out um, in hindsight would have made a cracking EP, I thought, but um, kind of was a bit of a weak full length in my mind. Um, So, yeah, and then we contributed um, a couple of songs in order to at least make the best of somewhat significant and not just a throwaway piece of shit because we didn't want anything associated with our name to be just a throwaway piece of crap. Um, We offered to write at least four new songs for that release exclusively which we did which were good i mean I, I, at least two songs on that on that um best of are actually really good funeral songs um and then <clears throat> gareth had left um just after we toured well just after we recorded memory and humanity actually um he was in a relationship he was based in the states so that long distance kind of working relationship just wasn't working out. So he decided to call it in and we got a friend of ours from Honda, a band called Honda McLean, mm-hmm. uh, step up and play bass. And he'd never played bass before. All <laughs> so, right. Um, so he, he, he kind of like knuckled down and, and got used to the idea. And, um, and then it was just a case of musical kind of, differences and, and desires to kind of bring more of the technicality gav wanted to kind of gav's a phenomenal guitarist and um he wanted to kind of bring back some of that kind of element of the of the riff of the of the stuff that we were we you know that he knew funeral for friend you know and he came as he came into the band as an outsider as a fan as well <clears throat> and you know he was quite he's always been very blunt about things you know you know that album shit that album shit that album's <laughs> the best thing we ever did let's write some stuff that sounds like that and um and it just it was it became a point then where it was just like darren just 
you know, decided to to knock it on the head. I think because things were kind of moving away, and he ended up leaving. And then we ended up getting Rich on bass when Gavin then moved to guitar, and we wrote Welcome Home Armageddon, which was kind of like a back to the kind of the funeral for a friend that people were kind of used to. Yeah. In me, in me, in my mind, that's like the first proper cohesive album post. Um, post hours that really rang more kind of true and then um, during the <clears throat> excuse me during the process of um, of writing and recording Conduit Ryan left and we re-recorded his drums with with Pat Lundy and that became more hardcore driven <clears throat> I'm not really sure why I think maybe we were just in a mindset. I mean, I think we were just at that age, you know, we were on that number of albums and we were just inspired to go back to the, the very early days of, of, you know, for a friend. <clears throat> I think the industry at that point had worn us down and we were still trying to reconnect with the joy of making music together as a band without any kind of, stress or concerns or worries and we just bashed a bunch of tunes i mean <clears throat> i wrote some song i think that was and that might be the only album that we've done where i haven't written, didn't write anything for it actually off the top of my head i can't remember if i did probably not actually if i can't remember <laughs> um <clears throat> but i loved it i mean i absolutely loved going back to the more hardcore thing i mean more hardcore than what the first, you know, for a friend EP was in a way. Mm. I mean, it kind of, it riffs off stuff like art of American football massively. And I love that it decided to go that, that way. I mean, I tried to kind of be as Mr. Hardcore frontman as possible about it. I mean, to be honest, that's kind of like where my oils are anyway. So it was just kind of, I felt like I could be me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could we... really let loose. I could really let loose and um, and, um, and and kind of have a bit more of my personality come through on um, on this rec on, on that record. And um, yes, very angry record. I mean, it's a very aggressive record. Um, it's a record that my voice tries to do things and fails um, at spectacularly on, um, <laughs> but still. Um, <clears throat> Basil literally finds its way. I mean, it finds is a purity in it, which I will always um, love. Yeah, we're both um, yeah, we're both big fans of that record. Um, and we saw you on the on that tour, and th as you say, there finding yourself. That's really what I took from it. I remember you talking a lot to the audience and being a bit more political about some of the speeches and things, and telling a few stories about where it comes from. And I remember thinking. God, ah, this is really interesting. This is the side of this band I've never seen before. And I really feel that connection to the roots. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, we were never, everything happened so quick with our band. I think we were never even ever really allowed time to properly develop what it is we wanted to be or how we wanted to realistically, deep down, portray ourselves. And um, I would always be in conflict with that during mm. the whole period of, of funeral. Um, where there was expectations of what I should do. Mm -hmm. And then there was expectations in my head uh, of what I 
I should do as well. And it's you know, constantly kind of, you know, that's the thing, like I said earlier on in the conversation, when you're not, you know, when you come from all different backgrounds, you don't grow up together, you don't share similar kind of things. It's difficult to kind of find a, a middle ground. And it took us a little while, but, um, you know, it's quite, the guys really allowed me to, at least with the lineup that we had of that one, were very, very much supportive of me, you know, being more open, more confrontational, more, mm. I mean, the, the lyrics of Funeral throughout, from the very first have always been, um, there have always been elements of, of personal, of social politics involved. Mm-hmm. You can't come. You can't come from South Wales and and not, and be and be left wing and not have it there. Sure. Um, um, it's maybe not as as blatant as it became in in later albums, but um, and um, yeah. I mean, I was very very comfortable. I mean, I was sort of going and talking about musical kind of influences. I had literally dived back into my comfort zone mm. and was immersing myself in a lot of stuff all this all i became very focused on punk rock not just in my in terms of my own personal history but in terms of the band the places we were playing the scenes that were in the the countries that we were visiting in um how could we put a spotlight on these things so we ended up really putting an effort into to pick and i went literally learning about so many bands and discovering like you know bands that we ended up playing with and making great friends with on tours over the years and all the all the different countries we played in and i'm very proud of that we were able to to start doing that specifically also in the uk i mean we ended up really mining the the pool of of bands existing in the uk that were being in my mind criminally overlooked and they were influencing me as well i mean discovering those bands their music was influencing me I, I i was completely oblivious i thought the uk hardcore scene was kind of dead on its ass and there it was it was thriving and um and my ignorance was just i, I mean a stupid me i mean I, I i literally literally couldn't you know i could have smacked my head literally repeat, face palm myself repeatedly but i mean i'm quite glad that we were able to then push the band in a direction which felt more at home for us as individuals. Weirdly, it felt like coming full circle of like we were able to complete some sort of, you know, cycle, you know, yeah. with, with beginning, beginning with Conduit. Yeah. Is there a song from Conduit that particularly stands out for you? That we can yeah. Um, the song Travelled. Great. Which is, a, <laughs> which is my favorite off album. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy Traveled. So um, there's one thing actually we did just want to ask you, and if you don't want to talk about this, we'll just edit it out and it's it's no problem at all. Um, I was listening to uh, your friend Sean Smith and Stu Richardson from Lost Profits talking about that whole period of what happened in 2012. We don't need to mm-hmm. name the names. But everyone knows um, probably what happened. Um, but they were talking about the effect, not that it just had on the guys in Lost Profits, but the, the whole kind of Welsh post-hardcore rock, whatever scene you want to call it. Um, did you guys feel any of that? Or, or did you kind of notice anything changing or I mean, opinions changing with you guys? 
I mean, we were aware of it. I mean, we obviously, who wasn't? I mean, at that point, it was yeah. a shock to the whole music scene in general. I mean, this, you know, it was, I mean, the, we had, we've, we toured with that band. I've spoken at length, had conversations with the person we're speaking about. Yep. Everybody knows who we're speaking about. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I know some of the other guys in the band had um, longer historic relationships with the guys in, in, in Profits. Um, so for me, it may not have been a longer than a, you know, a holy fuck, you know, what the fuck yeah, kind yeah, of shit, yeah, you know? Yeah, like we were. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I honestly didn't see it affect where we were and what okay. we were doing. I mean, we were so literally focused, uh, so like like tunnel vision focused on, you know, what we were doing as a band. I mean, obviously, yeah, we talked about it. I mean, it's, you know, those kind of revelations, you just, you know, it's hard to ignore and it just blows your mind, you know, that, you know, and you never really know anybody and it's, yeah. And it's, it's, it's I think it was a deep level of disappointment um, in our band because of the effect that it had on some genuinely we felt um good people hmm. um because of what effect it would have had on their lives and that's the thing i mean you just you know these things have a knock-on effect i mean it's and the, at the end of the day i mean they've they've soldiered on the other guys in, in profits and you know in the, in the band individually and have come through it and have shown their strength and ability to, to you know, to rise above that and to acknowledge, acknowledge it and, and deal with it and, and be significantly fucking angry, you know, at the person involved. And, and yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the kind of conversations that, that, that went on, but I mean, I'm glad that they've, they've, they've come out of it the other side and they're still able to create and they're still able to do things. And, you know, Mike and Stu are, are fantastic individuals. And, and I, I feel we all felt genuinely devastated for them and their families, you know, it's just, and the fans, I mean, that, a lot of love, a lot of people love that band. Yeah. And, sure. you know, they were, they were iconic. They were significant for South Wales for the whole, you know, the whole thing. And yeah. It was, it's there was um there was talk in that same interview um you know that don't no one get excited i'm not saying this is going to happen i have no idea <laughs> but maybe one day maybe 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 uh, the band could get back together and have a variety of front men um take on the songs for you know like a goodbye show type thing um if you got the call would you uh would you be up for that been a heartbeat yeah yeah i mean this happens i'm taking full credit by the way <laughs> i mean the thing is it's like i mean we've like i said we've our bands there's a thing about i don't know if it's it's probably every scene really but there was a time in in our lives where we would always cross paths and there would never be an awkwardness there would never be a weird moment there would always be the sense of just you know, general chill. I mean, we, we, we opened for them. We played shows with them in Europe. 
um, and they've always been, you know, real top dudes. I mean, Stu's out playing with Thursday at the moment, yeah, and it's yeah. you know, it's couldn't be more stoked. I mean, he's a phenomenal dude, and yeah, if they if if they even decided to do something, I mean, if that's what they wanted to do, then yeah, I mean, I'd I'd jump on for a song or two. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Fingers crossed one day it happens. Um, so quickly, uh, chapter and verse. Awesome yes, album. the Swan Song. Awesome <laughs> album. And uh, we, me and James were chatting about this earlier today, um, and we were speculating that you might have been listening to a bit of La Dispute um, during the recording process. Uh, it, were you? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that... Yeah, also a lot of, I mean, yes and no. Um, yes, in the fact that I was aware of the band and I started to kind of get into them. But when we were writing that record, I was listening to a lot of stuff like the Van Pelt and okay. um, Native Nod. Um, I was getting fully, if we're talking emo <laughs> shit now, um, uh, you listen to, to that stuff and you kind of see where these bands kind of that you know, like we we're mentioning, like Touche Amore and mm. and Artispute kind of evolved that evolution of the sound. I mean, that is um not, they're certainly not the first band to put like uh, the the poetry spoken almost like spoken word kind of yep. element into into hardcore or punk. And um and it was like again, it was like off the back of conduit. I mean, deep diving into a lot of stuff that I used to listen to and especially a lot of the abolition kind of um, stuff as well, like Fuel and, and and back to Fugazi, if we want to talk about kind of that kind of level of uh, a vocal approach, you know, Guy Pichotto's kind of uh, just mesmerizing. I mean, it, it, fuck, I mean, <laughs> I mean, inspirational dialed up to whatever number you can manage. And those, those were my kind of things there. I mean, my voice was a bit fucked after trying my best to throw my weight behind the screaming kind of thing mm -hmm. after we didn't have anybody else in the band to do it. Um, so I kind of, it kind of added a, um, an intensity and a rawness to the proceedings, which I didn't really anticipate. Um, yeah. And um, I, I, I think it turned out really well. There's a couple of songs on there that are a little bit like, mm, <laughs> maybe maybe we could have done that a little bit differently or we couldn't have been so blunt mm -hmm. with things um some of my not some of my lyrical moments where i wish i'd kind of been a bit more ambiguous or at least a bit more um i don't know um professional not professional but just a bit more because <laughs> i don't remember i think i'm a, at least professionally when I, I did with the band um Dealt with it with a bit more subtlety and nuance yeah. rather than a bit sledge, rather than the bringing the sledgehammer into the mix. Yeah. Um, but there's some stuff in there which I'm like, I mean, that's when I started really kind of piling on bringing some ideas to the table again. And there is one, oh, I, I'm really stoked with it. There's one song on the album which I was really thrilled by because I, I almost literally almost put it down as, as I kind of as I wrote it Chris kind of added his little flurries and his little thing to it but when we were doing the vocals and I went to Lewis 
um, Lewis Johns, who'd done significant am amount of great work in, amongst UK bands in the scene that we were that we played, we were bringing out bands, we were bringing out on tour with us, and um, I, I said I want I want the vocals on this track to sound like. Um, Kiss It Goodbye, the band Kiss It Goodbye. I, I literally pulled up Spotify and we played the Kiss It Goodbye album in its entirety while we were just sat there in the studio just so we could get an idea of what I was going for. And he was like, yeah, let's, let's fucking do it. So that's, that's it's literally like, literally pulling like influences and, and just little things, little nu nuanced homages to, to records that I was getting all kind of like really <laughs> fanboy like Giddy, I was like, I, you gotta make my vo vocals sound like the dude from uh, you gotta make, you know, kiss a goodbye <laughs> and we did I mean, and we literally we, we fucked around with so much stuff and it was cool it was freeing because we'd literally recorded it in like two weeks, which was like the shortest time we've ever recorded anything, it was literally do not overthink it just get it down, boom, 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 boom <clears throat> and we're done and I mean, I don't think it's perfect, but I'm quite glad that it's the last thing we we did. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant album. I really enjoy it. Um, oh, so let's play play that song. What was this? What was the, I don't know if you actually said what well, the song was. No, I didn't. But um, it's called um, "Modern Excuse of a Man." Okay, here it is. So let's fast forward a little bit more. Um, slam dunk. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, sadly, uh, we weren't there, but I've seen videos and it looked pretty special. How how was it? Um, given the current situation we're all in, words cannot describe the feeling <laughs> of that many people in that in that tent for the first time in two for me two years, and. Um, man, it felt fucking great. Yeah. To be honest, it felt fucking great. And the first, the first show, the first show we did was a little nerve wracking because I didn't, you know, we had like two days of rehearsals before because I had to fly in from Germany, go through all the quarantining stuff, testing and whatnot, and wait for that shit to come back. And <clears throat> so we, we kind of. You know, we had two days, two and a bit days together before we played the first show. And this was like our first time seeing each other in since we did the benefit shows. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, it was just like, it was pretty intense. I mean, the London, like the Hatfield show was just insane. Insane. I, had to, I mean, I, I was like, I was walking on a cloud the entire set and it wasn't until after we played that I, people were coming up and, and and people on social media were being so so sweet about our set um i can't remember most of it to be honest um i was itch i mean it, it's it, i was just in awe of the fact that we were able to even be there doing that i mean you know fuck you know special special things yeah and um Amazing. yeah i mean it's it, it's very very we were very felt very grateful to have been invited to participate yeah it looked like i said looked awesome from the, uh, the videos that i saw um so as, as you know we we put out a little post on instagram last week um for some kind of fan questions so uh if you're up for it i thought we could do a quick fire 
fan yep. question round. Let's so do three. First thing that comes to your mind, just whatever answer you can okay. give, we'll smash our way through uh, what we've got about uh, seven questions. Um, right. So, you ready? Just remember, these aren't our questions. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, okay. Okay, number one, do you still speak to Gareth? Yes. Number two, will you be recording new music? Was asked about 15,000 times. No. Any memories from playing in Singapore? Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, um, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. It was, I was jet lagged to fuck and I hadn't slept for five days, but um, I literally had one of the most nuts uh, shows I've ever had um, outside of the UK with funeral for a friend in Singapore. Nice. Nice. Uh, Favourite funeral uh, song to play live? Ooh, ooh, good one. Um, Storytelling. Uh, Why don't funeral play anything off memory and humanity? That's a good question. No idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Favourite Planes Mistaken for Stars song? Ooh, um, hmm. The past two or copper and stars. Good, like it. Good choice. Uh, and favorite line from someone else's song. Oh, um, it's a tough one. Good question, Raven. That one. Oh yeah, that's that's a very good question. Yeah. Isn't it? Um, uh, I'm gonna have to say it's probably. I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably fuck this up and get it wrong now, actually, because it's um, it's a bad religion. It's always always stuck in my head. Is um, I I think it's I can't believe it. The way you look sometimes like a trampled flag on a city street. Oh yeah, and um, in the context of the song, it's a magical kind of kind of distillation of of nationalism literally being broken down and i've all, i've always respected that and it always sticks in my head for some reason it's 21st century digital boy but um mm. by graduation but um always falls into my head lyrics are very tough one tough ones to kind of get rid because they're always in the moment things because when you're kind of listening to stuff and I'm always singing along to stuff, it's always in the moment. And then when you're trying like a, in a cold moment like that, just be like, yeah, oh, yeah. that's really hard. Hard. I, I wouldn't have been easy. able to, I wouldn't have been able to say any, any line from any song in the world ever, if I was put in that position. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, may, I may, I may have messed that one up, but um, I'm pretty sure it is what it is. But um, I, off, I it's just, it's, it sticks in my head, like, like a, tr- like a trampled flag in a city street. Oh yeah. It's just, the, the yeah. death of, of like, the national identity and stuff and things like that in the wake of you know mass digital, like, digitalization and the way that everybody's the world is going it's just like shit man yeah. they're always on point that band are always on point they've never yeah, listened yeah. a shit album yep. um so looking forward next year january i think it is huge yep. huge shows yes what this, can people expect um of the same Really? Yep. Um, I mean, to be honest, we're on such a roll and having such a good time and such so much fun um, playing together again. I mean, this is like, what, a six-piece, <laughs> three-guitar lineup, which is nuts. Um, 
I'm, I'm having so much fun playing with like you know having you know, Darren's back back on board and Ryan's back on board. It literally is supreme funeral and um um the vibe is good we're just having so much fun playing these songs and rediscovering these songs and engaging with an audience over them again and um i don't know if we'll deep dive into anything further than maybe the first three or four albums i'm actually that's true because we did play 16 at um at slam dunk which was um a new one for Darren because Darren doesn't play in that. So that was a new one for him to kind of get to grips with. Um, so who knows? I mean, we're still conversations over set lists and stuff. So yeah. So January, that was, that is going to be a fun time. It's going to be fucking cold. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'd rather, it be, I'd rather it be a bit cold and wet, but I mean, really couldn't we just done in the summer? <laughs> No, no, again in the summer. Gonna, <laughs> it's gonna be. I mean, we're playing download. We, I mean, obviously the download thing was being postponed, so I'm glad yeah, we're coming course. back to do to do that next year. Um, fingers crossed. I mean, obviously these things are all, you know, at the mercy of of the health and pandemic situation. Yeah. So um, fingers crossed yep. that everything pulls together. Right. I mean, so yeah, that's gonna be fun times next year. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I think that is a, a good place to end um thank you so much mate for taking the time to speak to us it's been awesome it's been great hearing all the stories um chatting about the, all the awesome albums and the songs and how they were made and uh life in the band we we really appreciate you taking the time yeah i did thanks for, i mean i um the amount of these things a podcast i've done in my life i could count on on one hand so um usually i'm very private and I, I'm very not always comfortable about talking about stuff sure so um you caught me at a very 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 good time we were lucky. Very, I, mean, I mean no no I mean to be honest I mean I was just I mean it was the name I mean I was like we talked about emo we did we fulfilled my my prequisite you know re request <laughs> and making sure that we uh discussed some emo emo moments but um how many people have you had mentioning Native Nod and the Van Pelt on the show? Come on. Come well, on, exactly. Huh? There you go. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> definitely none. Definitely none. So we'll, we'll make um, sure we play them next time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. I mean, I'm very happy I had a good time. So I'm glad that you were enthused and, you know, thanks for giving a shit about what I've participated in for the last 17, 18 years of, of my band, 20 years of my band's life. Yeah. Been pleasure 20 years it's been an absolute pleasure yeah thank you so much and uh stay in touch yeah likewise guys let me know when this goes out and when this is going out and i'll push it through and make sure it gets pushed through our uh, channels and things amazing thanks so much mate no worries Take really care. appreciate you thanks. can uh, you can get to bed now yeah <laughs> good night guys take Cheers. care dude bye